What's up, everybody? Welcome to the most recent installment of Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, Emmett, your nuclear barbarian, and I am here with the climate scientist, Roger Pilkey Jr., and we're going to talk about climate science and climate science. <laughs> um, and he's written some very fascinating stuff in his substack, The Honest Broker. Check it out in the show notes. Subscribe to paying subscription come on now um and we're gonna have some fun today uh so how you doing man thanks for coming on pleasure to be here happy to be chatting with you finally get to see you face to face so yeah so. yeah absolutely so um before we get going here uh and sort of delving into some of this stuff which uh, i found really just you know as somebody who covers a lot of environmental history because i think that the history of the environmental movement is obvious on usually treated as like a hagiography and it's right. rarely critical. And there's very little in the genealogy of ideas and how they turn it flower right. into policy. So I was glad that you did that. But before we get into that, what's, how did you become a climate scientist? Was that something you always wanted? Uh, you know, basically how did you become the Roger Pilkey jr? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, my background, my, my schooling is in math and political science. So I, I, I don't usually call myself a climate scientist because I, I, I sit at that messy intersection where mm. science and policy and politics collide. Um, my research, though, if you look at it, I publish in climate science journals, climate policy journals. Um, and so I'm kind of a weird interdisciplinary scholar. But it all started with Roger Pelkey Sr., who's my dad, who actually mm -hmm. is a world famous, now retired climate scientist. Um, and I got a math degree as an undergrad. I thought I was going to be a physical scientist like my dad. Um, you know, long story short, had a chance to go work on the Hill at the House Science Committee. And, mm. you know, got, got to see that uh, science and politics colliding is a pretty fascinating place. Um, wound up doing a PhD on how climate science can be useful in policy. And this was in the early 90s before Wow. You know, climate science was really a thing. That's like that's like right after Rio. That is like right when yeah. that enters the discourse. I was doing some uh, combing through the DOE archives into um, some of Ken Lay's yep. speeches from Enron, and he was yep, he was yep. one of the he was at the tip of the spear for some yep. of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. That was a time when you know George Bush Senior was saying things like he was going to counter the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's and, right. You know, climate hadn't become so deeply partisan at the time. Um, I had done my master's thesis on the space shuttle program, um, evaluating whether it was a success or a failure. And then I, I wanted to do a, a more complicated policy evaluation. And I don't know, somewhere along the way, 1991, the U.S. Global Change Research Act passed. Mm. And I said, all right, this is this looks complicated. Um, I'm going to evaluate yeah. how we know if that's working or not. So, you know, I, I did a postdoc at NCAR, National Center for Atmospheric Research, focused on extreme weather. Um, so I've been working literally on extreme weather for like 30 years. Um, that wow. I was there for eight years. Then I wound up going to the University of Colorado Boulder, starting a science policy center and you know, got investigated by Congress, got attacked by the White House uh, science advisor, um, was in the WikiLeaks, was in the climate gate email. So it's been kind of an interesting journey, um, but I've had a front row seat to the whole climate science policy issue for about 30 years. Yeah. Wow. What a fascinating trajectory. So real quick, what I remember, because I, uh, as I was telling you before we started recording, like I had been working on Michael Schellenberger's Apocalypse Never, I was tasked right. with going through the, the WikiLeaks stuff. 
my understanding of it was basically, and this is sort of contextualize your perspective and what I think is unique about it. Um, Obviously you take climate change seriously. (laughs) Uh, It's real. It's something that's, that's unfolding. Right. right? Um, But there were claims being made about uh, extreme weather impacts uh, getting more and more dangerous. And you demonstrated empirically that this just wasn't, this claim didn't stand up to scrutiny. And in fact, the opposite was true. And that got you on the wrong side of the discourse, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair to say. And, you know, I, I I tend not to talk about extreme weather events like in a big bucket because, I mean, the reality is nuanced and, you know, the real world doesn't like It's always complicated. Way. Like right. some, some things may not be, some things are. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think the ones that they were talking about, you'd specified right. it, maybe it was hurricanes. Yeah. And you'd so, said coastal damage just isn't what it used to be. Right. I mean, one of the things this is, you know, this for me, it's it's kind of interesting to look back is um, I started a postdoc in 1994 focused on mm-hmm. hurricanes. And, you know, one of the first big impact papers I did was with a scientist named Chris Lancy, who's now at the National Hurricane Center, where we looked, we asked the question, if if the if there was a period in the 1990s that was the most inactive period for hurricanes in the last 50 years, but it was also the most expensive in terms of damage. Mm. And we said, all right, you can't use damage to say anything about activity and you know the obvious elephant in the room is oh we're building more condos and high-rises and structures and people and vacation homes and beach houses Um, and that's leading to the damage so by the time Al Gore's movie came out in 2006 um, I had been working on hurricanes for you know more than a decade and you know whatever reasons that that Al Gore had um, for for focusing his movie on Katrina um, which was 2005 and a massive tragedy, um, but it was the centerpiece of that movie. Hurricanes became kind of a center talking point in the climate debate. And um, I had already published extensively on that topic. I was getting awards for my research showing that it was societal change, not climate change. Mm. Um, but once that movie came out, for me, it really changed the you know the landscape of how the issue was discussed. Yeah, it really did. I was actually... Um writing on this i'm putting together a book proposal and i have to do the horrific part of it where i explain why i'm the guy that's supposed to write it right you know which means i have to write about myself which is feels like removing one of my own organs right right Um, been there done that yeah 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 exactly and so i had to go back to i was like well when did i go back like what 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 would be the origin story for this and it was sitting in saint ignatius college prep in chicago and watching an inconvenient truth Interesting. And having Al Gore, like in his sort of plotting and patient way, uh, give the first PowerPoint presentation I'd ever seen in my entire life, you know, and it did like that seems to already environmentalism was becoming a paradigm through which we viewed energy. Right. And then climate, I think, became the entrenchment of that paradigm, which is a fascinating time. This is the time at the same time, just to put this in more context for people that, um, you know, Hurricane Katrina is interesting because Enron traders who'd gone into other hedge funds had bet on natural gas futures around the time and bid up the price. And that allowed Aubrey McClendon to drill worn out wells for good money. And it led to the gas boom and that didn't solve anything, but all of this stuff is happening around the same time. And so is this narrative that I grew up with as the thing that we have to avoid, which is 1.5 Celsius. Yeah. 
right? Warming of 1.5 Celsius. So that's my back in to yeah. the first piece of yours I wanted to talk about. Where did this actually come from, this phrase? First of all, what is it? What do people mean when they say 1.5 C? And then we'll get to where it comes from. Yeah, that's a great question because it's there's a lot of confusion about yeah. this. Um, you know, measuring the, the the global average surface temperature, it's not like, you know, I have a thermometer out my window and I can tell you what it is. So you don't just lick um, it, <laughs> right? breathe on it and stick it out. And you're finger like, out. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's some there's some peer reviewed papers actually discussing and debating, you know, what what is the global average surface temperature and and what does it mean? And and if it's a long average, so climate, we have to go back to what climate is. Climate is the statistics of you know, weather and weather phenomena over a period of decades and longer. The, the canonical time by the World Meteorological Organization is 30 years, but you know, climate obviously operates on shorter and longer timescales, mm -hmm. but it's a long time. So, so in order to identify a global average surface temperature at any point in time, you need to know what happens in the future. So in reality, it might be 10 years after we hit a certain temperature threshold that we know that we hit it. Um, yes. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's not the instantaneous temperature. So, in the media lately, there's been some discussions that well, if there's an El Nino event, which is a warming of the um, Central Pacific, um, that may push global temperatures in the next couple of years over 1.5 degrees. That's a different thing than the metric that's used to evaluate climate change. And so it gets real complicated real fast. Mm -hmm. um, but the re I mean, the reality, and we can get into this, is that it's you know, it's 1.5 or two degrees. They're nice round numbers. They're more signifiers than mm -hmm. hard and fast thresholds. Um, and so, you know, it, it's always difficult in policy because when, you know, there's an old saying in policy that has, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who are claimed to have said it, but, but when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a useful measure anymore because mm. that's what everybody focuses on. So, so yeah, it's, it's it's and we can talk about you know the genesis and the history of ideas, which is always fascinating in policy. Um, but the important thing for people to remember is that it's it's a qualitative concept expressed quantitatively, um, <laughs> and and we can get into what that actually means. But there's nothing magical about 1.5 versus 1.56732 or 1.8 or 1.4. It's 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 um, a signifier. Well, see, this is sort of what's interesting to me, right? Like the, I've been rereading this one paragraph Borges story like all year, and it's his map versus territory one yeah, about yeah. the cartographers who try to create the map yep. that befits the whole empire. And of course, and the story is called On Exactitude in Science, right? And it's, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. And it's a fake historical document, right. it's one paragraph long. And I keep returning to it because when it comes to energy or climate, it seems like signifiers and models tend to win out over the physical and the empirical um, in a way that's very, very frustrating because it's not as if we live in a world where models and signifiers aren't important. Right. But how that gets weighted, I think, is very, very difficult, not just in a partisan environment, but I actually think that there's a deeper problem that we also live in an incredibly uh, mediated uh, social environment that right. is rife with signifiers and assumed meanings. Right. You know, so yeah, those I mean, disaggregations get even harder. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you raise that that analogy because in my 
in my policy courses, so I, I taught a lot kind of just general policy analysis, I explained to my students that, that what we do in policy analysis is we create maps of the world. You know, the world's complicated. It's super complicated. We can never fully understand it or appreciate it or, or catalog it. But in order to, to move our way through the world, we need maps of the context that we're in so that we can intentionally go from where we're at today to where we want to be, you know, mm -hmm. whatever that policy goal happens to be. So all that we do in policy analysis are try to create useful and to some degree accurate maps of the world we're, we're going through so that we can have intentional decisions taking us to where we want to be. If, if we can't anticipate where we're going to be in the future, then, you know, let's give it up. We don't, there, we don't need policy analysis and it's all just random. Um, I don't believe that. I think right, right, right. in the history, you know, of, of energy, of agriculture, of health shows that, yeah, we can do a pretty good job intentionally moving towards a goal might take a long time, mm -hmm. but um, I think climate is very similar, but, but that puts a lot of attention on, well, how do we construct these maps that we then use to move through the world? Um, and on climate, I think there's, you know, some good empirical evidence that the dominant maps paradigms for how we think about the issue um, sometimes lead us astray. Yeah. And I think the story of 1.5 C is a really good version yep. of that. Right. So the way that you have it is there's a correspondence between Bill McKibben and James Hansen and Bill McKibben's like, all right, man, what's give, give me, give me the parts per million number. Like what's like, what's going on, you know, like getting just like Hansen says, you know, I have this unpublished draft and I'm thinking it's like 250 parts per million, you know, correlated to, you know, 1.5 C warming and, Bill McKibben says, great, I'm going to name my organization that and we're going to take out an ad in the yep. Financial Times before the big 2009 uh, sort of disastrous climate meeting that doesn't really go right, anywhere. Right, right. And it becomes like ad copy in the name of his organization. And then somehow it becomes policy. So how does it go from that stage, from advertising in a way, to... Yep policy and even in a strange way to become adopted by the scientific community, perhaps against their better judgment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great, great summary in a nutshell. And let me, let me rewind the tape a little bit please, and, please. and, and go it earlier. Um, in, in 1992 at the Rio earth summit, um, it was the first big international um, convention on um, climate change. And, and the, the language that was agreed upon there was that we wanted to avoid what was called, this is a direct quote, dangerous anthropogenic interference mm. um, in the climate system, you know, recognizing that there's going to be economic costs and that countries have different responsibilities. But that phrase, dangerous anthropogenic interference, is, it's, it's kind of like an inkblot, right? What, it wasn't defined. What did it mean? So really for you know, more than a decade, there was a big debate in the literature over what does, you know, what does that mean? How do we, how do we operationalize that in policy? And there's a number of different metrics. And, and one key factor behind all of these is that, that the lens through which um, climate policy has been implemented has largely been models. Mm. Um, there are what are called integrated assessment models, which integrate society, energy, the economy. Um, and then there's physical climate models. Um, and it was very easy to take a model and say, all right, we want to optimize climate policy based on what the model tells us. 
And early on, as you mentioned, um, there were what we call concentration targets. So this is a mm -hmm. measure of how much carbon dioxide is accumulating in the atmosphere. So when we burn fossil fuels, um, that emits carbon dioxide. And it basically, it's not forever. But from a policy standpoint, it might be well be forever. It stays in the atmosphere for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like it's like if you put water in a bathtub, you're filling it up. Um, you know, it'll evaporate eventually. But, you know, as far as your floor and rug is concerned, um, it's in there, you know, forever. It's not going to evaporate before you. you right. Right. It. And so so early on, um, there was a focus on concentration targets. And um, the the. Um, the, the targets, you know, again, nice round numbers that were talked about, you know, early on, it was a doubling of pre-industrial carbon dioxide. So from 280 parts per million to 560, um, that eventually um, was winnowed down to a target of 450 parts per million, which, as you mentioned, was corresponds to a, a you know, roughly two degree temperature increase over pre-industrial. Um, and so... Bill McKibben and James Hansen had their discussion 2007, 2008, somewhere around there, right about when um, the policy community was shifting from talking about concentration targets, which, you know, people listening to this are probably already eyes rolling back in their head, um, try to explain that to the general public or, you know, on the floor mm -hmm. of Congress, um, to temperature targets which the idea was, well, this is a much more- Way easier for me to understand, yeah, especially yeah, because yeah. back then, uh, I mean, this was fascinating, right? Like back then, if you were liberal, right. you called it global warming. Right. And if you were conservative, yep. you called it climate change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is interesting because, you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, you know, uses the phrase climate change and predates all of that partisan US discussion. Right, which is another strange wrinkle. Like I'm not yeah, saying- yeah. Right, right. I'm only pointing out that this is yeah the the, the wrinkles that go yeah. into how this happens are actually really yeah. important to pay attention to. Absolutely, because you can see even unintentional sleights of hand get right. rhetorically built into these models and how we talk about these policies. Right, right. Yeah. So back, I mean, so back then there was a, a kind of a parallel track, and you know, it involves an advisory committee to the German government, um, Angela Merkel and others, um, thinking that well, two degrees is a much more apprehensible, understandable concept. Um, you know, the, the, the concept of two degrees has its own intellectual history. Um, the economist, Nobel Prize winner, uh, William Nordhaus, um, discussed, you know, a two degree temperature change in a 1977 paper um, based on the idea that the central England temperature record over, you know, 500 years only fluctuated plus or minus one degree. So he said, oh, it seems like that's where humanity can thrive. Um, there was never, you know, one thing to understand about these targets is they're not, they're not hard and fast. They're more, um, you know, they're more like what ifs, or, you know, let's just set a, set a hard boundary. Um, you know, economists use the term stylized and they're kind of stylized. Policy. Oh, good. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I was about to ask you, I was like, I hadn't heard that phrase before. So yeah. yeah they're, stylized they're refers stylized, to like, yeah. like for, for, you know, for purposes of assumption, let's assume that the U.S. has a population of 350 million in 2030. Yeah. Right. And then, all right. So we made that assumption. Now we can do some analysis with that. But that's not me saying I predict that the. No, you're getting wind in the sail to see yeah, yeah. if you can generate helpful right. information. Right? right. Like that's that's what's happening. Like you have, right, right. you know, this is something that, you know, I have taught. um 
Euclidean geometry before, like from and, Euclid's elements. And the, yeah. the first thing we always talk about are the definitions. And right. the first one, a point. A point is that which has no part. Right. And I'm like, what the hell could this even mean? And why did we start right. here? And it's because, right, you, right. first of all, you have to start somewhere. So you start right. with the smallest thing. Yeah. You know, and it's similar with this stuff. It's like, we're gonna, we're not going to say it's going to be like a bajillion, like right. two seems reasonable. Like It right. seems like, you know, it seems like we could wrap our heads around that. And then right, what right, comes right. out of that? And is it useful? And is it like perspicacious? You know, all these things. Right, right. Yeah. And so, so when, when, when McKibben and Hanson had their conversation, Hanson had his, his white paper that was saying, <laughs> excuse me, um, that that you know maybe 450 parts per million is too much even though that's the center of you know the current policy discourse maybe we should aim for 350 um that was apparently appealing to McKibben because 450 at the time was you know in the future a few decades um and 350 we already passed so if you're an advocate and you're saying we're already past the threshold of disaster destruction doom whatever it happens to be that's a much more that creates a much more of a political imperative than, oh, we got to watch out for this target that we're going to hit in 2040 or 2050. Um, so um, he named his organization 350.org. And at the, you know, probably the the inconvenient time of that the world was moving to temperature targets. So, I mean, if he was doing it today, maybe he'd name it 1.5 degrees.org or something like that. Sure. Um, 450 was always associated with two degrees. Um, and you know, 350 has been associated with 1.5, but it's not as hard and fast as that. There's mm. a huge amount of play and uncertainty there. Um, but the reality is, is that the policy community leading up to Paris in 2015 and the big Paris agreement um, kind of went full on um, focused on the two degree target. And what are we talking like, you know, 23 years after Rio, they finally decided what dangerous anthropogenic interference was. Um, and then as kind of a political um, carrot to, um, small island states and other um, countries, um, they put some text in there that said there would be an aspirational target of 1.5 degrees. Mm -hmm. um, and that, so that's kind of the modern um, the modern creation of the 2 degree and 1.5 degree targets. Um, after that, the, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the organization that you know is under the Rio Convention and um, operates the annual big climate confab, the COPs, every year, mm -hmm. um, they asked the IPCC to do a special report on 1.5 degrees. And that's where we get to a fork in the road. Um, the scientific community um, had never really up to that point studied 1.5 degree temperature mm -hmm. outcomes because the, uh, the assessment of the community was, these aren't plausible. We're not going there. We're gonna, mm -hmm. we're gonna blow through that in no time. Mm -hmm. uh, and the scientific community had a choice. And, and when I say scientific community, you know, it's it's a general statement. And, it, you know, leaders of the scientific community, leaders of the IPCC, individual scientists who chose not to or to speak out. Um, it's a big it's a big bucket. But the scientific community decided to go along with the one point five degree notion. Um, and the IPCC fell in line behind it, even though at the time and still today, um, you know, my personal assessment is that most people with expertise in this field don't think that limiting global average temperature change to 1.5 degrees, and we can talk about that in terms of what it implies for carbon emissions and fossil fuel consumption sure, sure. and energy, but it's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the, the argument I made in my recent piece was that 
we've been kind of, um, I don't know, in a cul-de-sac, I guess, if we're, you know, back to the map metaphor for trying to get somewhere um, with all this focus on 1.5 degrees. Um, and we can talk about what that effects that has had on the modeling and the policy communities. Um, but the general sense now is that we're going to pass through it, um, even if it's not, that's not broadly accepted. But what that means is that we're going to have to reopen up discussion of targets and timetables. And you know, the question is, if it's not 1.5 degrees, then what are we doing here? What what does success look yeah. like? Yeah. What 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 do we? Yeah. No, I think that's great. Like this is this is something I've been thinking about. Um, you know, this is a, there are like two wolves inside me, right? <laughs> and there's a side of me that's like, um, uh, I mean, believes in science is such a stupid phrase, I think, but right. you know, like, uh. I'm convinced by scientific arguments that mm -hmm. are well-reasoned to the extent that I can understand them beyond a certain threshold of expertise, right? Like that's, you know, and I think that they should be part of how we make certain decisions in the world, right. especially energy decisions. That's why I like yep. nuclear. I have a show called Nuclear Barbarians, you know. Right, right. Um, uh, and there's this other part of me uh, that is the, you know, sort of like ancient philosophy guy that's very skeptical about the types of claims science can make in political discourse and how it should be evolved. And I think that this is perhaps a really good metric for this. And, and here's what I think. You can tell me. I'm going to say something and then you, and you can critique it and respond. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to say what I see happen is that there is this idea that science gets to be both neutral and political as a way to Trojan horse political ends into it, right? So we say, it's just what the science says. And so this is what we have to do. And I think that's a violation of what science is supposed to be. And that doesn't mean that I think that like nothing is settled, right? The sort of like the radical relativism argument um, right, right. is something that I don't believe in. But I think that that is an end run around the difficult thing you just described, yep. which is we're actually going to have to have a very fraught conflict over what we're supposed to be doing. And things like these models, like 1.5C, are a way to smooth over that and to basically hand it over to what I see as like necessary but misused instrumental bureaucracies. So that was yeah. long. I'm sorry. That's yeah, sort yeah. Of no, my I mean, concern there's, here. There's a lot that makes sense to me. I mean, I, I will say that, you know, the, the, the two wolves you described, I mean, science is only science because we're skeptical about science. Right. Um, and, and science only stands up because it survives challenges. And so if if we anoint, you know, scientists or, you know, people like me with a PhD as like a priesthood um, and they can't be challenged um, for politics or, you know, authority or whatever, then it stops being science. So mm -hmm. I'm very much of the school of thought that that the science behind climate change and its risks and energy policy and its opportunities and risks is plenty strong enough to stand up to all sorts of challenges. Mm -hmm. um, but for whatever reason, um, as, as this issue has become, you know, globally, politically significant, um, 
it has become more and more difficult professionally, personally, and so on to actually have those discussions. Um, there's, there's a scholar at Cambridge named Mike Hume, a longtime colleague of mine, um, who argues that there are some two-degree futures that we can mm -hmm. envision that are better off for people on the planet than other 1.5-degree futures. Mm -hmm. And basically what he's saying is you cannot use global temperature targets as a proxy for human flourishing or environmental flourishing. Right, right, right. And I mean, imagine a world that's two degrees, but everyone in the world has an average income of 200,000 US dollars. And then imagine a world of 1.5 degrees and everyone has an average income of 2000 US dollars. Mm -hmm. um, you could probably say, well, you know, the, the higher temperature one might have a little bit more climate change, but everybody's better off. And maybe that means the environment will be better off too, because there's a good correlation between those. So yeah. that's where it gets complicated is when we reduce things to simple linear metrics, um, we lose all the nuance of the real world, um, which is, you know, that's science too. So, Right. So let me ask you this as somebody who yep. has been living in this world for a long time. You you said something very fascinating to me. You said like personally, professionally, yep. um, it's become difficult to have those conversations what do you mean by that and why? So I'll give you an example. So I don't know. It's not too long ago. I was invited to write an op-ed for a major newspaper, um, Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. on, and It was something to do with disasters and climate change. And you know, I think it was on adaptation. And I had in there a statement that said, um, you know, there's been no increase in U.S. hurricane landfalls since 1900. That's what mm -hmm. that's what the data says. It's it's a simple metric. You just count up the storms, and the editor took it out. And I said, you know, why'd you take that out? And the editor responded to me that that I know it's accurate, but all of our readers won't believe it um, because of the narrative around climate change and hurricanes and all that. And for me, that's um, you know, and it was taken out. My piece, you know, went out. And it was, you know, it did fine. But if we can't say things that are true. And supported by the evidence because we're worried that the mob our customers people in our political party won't like it um then we've kind of turned things on their head and we've made it difficult for evidence and science to enter our political discourse um if someone doesn't want to believe um that that hurricanes have not increased that's fine you know it's a, they can think whatever they want to think um but but if I can't say that because people are afraid of how they might react, then we have put some obstacles. Now, now take that little dynamic, that little story I just described, and then expand it into peer-reviewed literature or the scientific publishing where we start governing or gatekeeping what can be said in science. Mm. Um, and I've seen the same thing happen. I've seen um, editors of, of peer-reviewed scientific journals um, asking me to remove statements that are true because they're worried of, you know, the, the, the what will happen to them, the, the pressure and so on. So, so if we allow the external environment where science operates, which I mean, science is absolutely essential in making good decisions, but if we turn that on its head, then, um, you know, we shouldn't be surprised if we make some bad decisions or go down some, you know, flawed pathways. We wouldn't do that when we try to fly airplanes or operate nuclear mm -hmm. power plants or, shoot down balloons in the sky. Um, we probably shouldn't do it in other areas of policy. Mm, mm, mm. You know, I'm reminded, um, one of my favorite platonic dialogues is the Mino. I don't know if you're familiar. 
Um, it's great. This opens with a question from Mino to Socrates. Socrates, can you tell me, you know, uh, how can virtue be taught? Or, you know, is it achieved by some other way? We can spend like a whole hour discussing what it meant is by some other way and why that's a right, weird right. question to ask, right? But Socrates, of course, has like a sort of condescending and very funny, ironic response where, you know, he says, you know, I'm but a humble Athenian. And if you asked any of my countrymen, we would reply, you know, you're already ahead of us because you seem to know what virtue is, right? you know, before you can get to top. So they have this whole conversation where dialectically it's revealed. Mino doesn't actually have a solid definition of what virtue is. And then he says something very fascinating to me. Right. He says, you know, you Socrates, you have torpedo fished me. In other words, you've brought me to a state of aporia, of like radical uncertainty. Right. And now I'm kind of uncomfortable and a little bit scared. Yeah. You know, I can no longer answer your questions. And I think what's been fascinating to me, I think this has been a trend really in American politics since the, uh, the oil shock of 1973 um, is this entrenchment of crisis to avoid the feeling of aporia. Right, right, right. And and I see that in many domains of intellectual life, not just the sciences. Right. Yeah. There's, I mean, this is very uh, similar to what John Dewey, the American pragmatist says that, that when we're thinking, um, you know, learning how to think and being a good thinker requires being willing to persist in a state of uncertainty or even ignorance for a long time. Mm-hmm. And there are issues like, you know, how do we get to net zero carbon dioxide? And the answer, the, the, the only right answer to that is we don't really know right now. Um, that's a big job. Um, we know how to start the job and we might be able to envision how we, we start moving in that direction. But do we know what we're going to do about jet fuel? Um, do we know what we're going to do about the petrochemical mm-hmm. industry? Not, not yet. Um, yeah. But we don't have, I mean, this is similar if you said a hundred years ago um, to agriculture experts, how are you going to feed a world of 9 billion people? And <laughs> the, answer would be, the answer would be, the only honest answer at the time was hell if I know, but we know mm-hmm. how to get started and we can move in that direction. Same thing with, you know, advancing human lifespans. You know, if you, it, it was, it's, it's Steve Johnson has a book, you know, he talks about you know, the doubling of human lifespans. If you went back a century and asked medical experts, how are you going to double human lifespans on planet earth? They'd say, no, the, like the only people that were even close to talking about that were like the weird subset of Soviets in the twenties and thirties <laughs> called the cosmists who were like, we will conquer death. <laughs> like through right. communism, we'll right. bring people back to life. Like we'll figure yeah, yeah, it out. Yeah. But it's not like they had a roadmap for that. It was just profoundly right. aspirational, you know? Right. But this is how policy works, especially related to technology, is that um, climate change policy, which is by definition, very long-term, decadal, you know, better part of the century sort of a policy. Um, instead of focusing, like, how do we get rid of the last ton of carbon dioxide? You know, our focus should be on art. How do we accelerate the progress that we're already making? How do we mm. make tomorrow and next year we're moving faster in the direction we want to go? Um, and then we'll reevaluate at that point. What you know, what what have technological advancements? What have changes in policy and politics have enabled for us to do? So, so I think persisting with um, 
<laughs> with uncertainty and even ignorance in this policy space is an okay place to be. It's fine. It's and you know it's 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 the normal state of affairs. Um, but mm-hmm. a lot of folks find it uncomfortable. Um, it, for reasons you describe, because it's 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 you're you're unmoored, untethered from uh, certainty. Well, and it asks for something really interesting. You know, it asks something. It asks for something that I think is very, very recent in human life, um, and you know, I've almost th- thought of this as a human habit, right? I've been thinking a lot about the the fall of the Holy Roman Empire. Yep. You know, the whole early, very, very early modern art of prognostication, like before it becomes the sort of the instrumentalized science that we have now, sort of in the post-Newtonian, post-Baconian world was about when when does the apocalypse come when the empire falls and th- that was the first gesture towards guesses in the future like that and it was om- and before that we had the idea of sort of like the um cycles of history you know you yep, know the yep. rise and the fall and the decadence you know beginning with a great flood you know all of these things right and we have i think this is the same instinct that is for the stylized data like yep. we want to understand when this sort of perhaps endpoint is and then what we can do to perhaps avoid it. And so we need almost this enclosure around the horizon of the future to figure out what to do. And the evocation of a climate crisis is one way to do that. It satisfies a very human need saying it's okay to operate in the dark for a little bit is to ask for, I think, a profound, like a radical act of faith in the ongoingness of not just human life, but modernity, which has been unlike any other human epoch before it in very fundamental ways. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that all strikes home with me. I mean, and I think, I mean, this is your area of expertise, but in energy, um, you know, the, the debates over whether, um, you know, the world should aim towards cheap, plentiful, accessible energy for everyone. Um, you know, has persisted since, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, starting with the population crisis, I put that in in air quotes, um, going now through, through climate change. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there, there is a branch, I won't say it's the whole thing, but a branch of modern environmentalism that um, is very apocalyptic um, in kind of a secular manner that views things like extreme weather as either portents um, or punishment for our sins, which mm-hmm. you know, are the sin of consuming energy and, and emitting fossil fuels, um, and and turning energy policy from a morality play into a cold technical exercise of how do we deliver electrons to yeah right yeah it's far less romantic too by the way right. like that's that's the other thing it's sort of like it's it's almost like an American pragmatic response to the question yeah. of meaning. And it's right. understandable why people find that insufficient, by the way. Right, right, right. And I, yeah, I've right? Only like, at an emotional level, that. we can sort right. of admit that. <laughs> yeah. No, I've only come to appreciate that later because, you know, it, it is very easy as a policy analyst to be somewhat technocratic. But, you know, recognizing that when people see energy technologies, they don't see a fork and a knife and a spoon, you know, just mm-hmm. an implement. Um, they map onto those technologies, values aspirations, um, you know, even quasi-religious kind of feelings towards them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know this better than me, but nuclear power is at the center of that kind of. Oh, process. yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's the, it's the sword and the plowshare. You know, it, it is, 
I think those of us who support nuclear power in the way that I do, uh, it's not that we don't appreciate the younger, those of us that didn't live through the Cold yeah. War yeah. have a very hard time understanding how almost ontologically significant the splitting of the atom was. Right. Both in its peril and its promise. Right. Like, like unlike anything, it was so much more immediate than the onboarding of coal yeah. into human life, which from 1712 on is like a very lengthy process, you know, right. <laughs> right? It's, yeah. it's not, you know, oil, it was so that we already kind of got it. We were just like, Oh yeah. It's like, it's like this other thing. Right. The atom was, it was something else, but, and there are all sorts of questions of expertise and the relationship yeah, yeah, yeah. of science to the state with that and to the military with that, yeah. you know, all sorts of questions. So that's sort of, this is my sort of final question for you. And this is a big one, but I've wanted to ask you this. I think since I worked on the segment of Apocalypse Never yeah. uh, that, that you were featured in. So I'm glad I get to ask you now, which yeah. is what should the scientist's relationship with politics be? Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is a great question. I, I wrote a yeah. book called The Honest Broker in 2007, where I tried to map this out. And the the, the answer is that there are multiple answers. Mm -hmm. um, and and democracy needs expertise to function at the same time experts need to, to the phrase i use is make peace with democracy for democracy mm. to function and it, it's it's very contextual so so if um you know there's an earthquake you know like has recently happened in turkey and there's an emergency situation uh, you want governments and their experts making decisions right away and there's not time for public input and um mm -hmm. and you just want to have the best experts there and available um, if you're making a decision about the course of energy policy for the United States for the next 15 years, you want your experts to inform that, but it's not something that we have to decide today or tomorrow. We, you know, we can have congressional hearings, we can have public mm -hmm. comment periods. So the first thing to understand is that the, the, the roles of experts in democracies are multiple and varied, um, and not all experts have to do the same role at the same time. So mm -hmm. climate change is a great example. We have we have scientists who are um, laying down in the street and gluing themselves to banks to advocate for change and protesting. We have scientists who are working with the IPCC to try to inform um, inform scientific assessments um, for policy. We have other scientists who are acting as um, advisors to congressional committees and congressional staff on legislation for their favorite political party. All of these roles are appropriate. And, and what I encourage my peers to do is to understand the different roles and when they're helpful and when they're not helpful. Um, in the COVID, so I led a project um, during COVID on science advice in the pandemic, and I can point to numerous examples where experts self-organized and probably made things worse from the standpoint of policy outcomes than better, even though, you know, maybe their hearts were in the right place. But having dueling experts, um, that cancel each other out and delegitimize the government, probably not a good thing. So, so this is um, the analogy I often use is, is marshalling scientific expertise in democracies is a lot like diplomacy. Mm. Diplomacy is an art and it requires expertise, experience. We have schools of diplomacy that teach how you do it. Um, we need schools of scientific advice 
for you know formal and informal scientific advisors so people understand that this is every bit as important as diplomacy and every bit as nuanced and complicated um and there's no there's no it's like what's what's the best way to be a diplomat well you know how much time do you have have a seat um mm. it's the same thing with science advice um is that it's 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 an avocation it's a profession and we need to start treating it like that because as we've seen in in covid and um in energy policy and climate policy and public health issues more generally um we need experts and and we want to make sure they're helping the practice of democracy not hurting it yeah yeah i think that's um you know if i could make a uh reading recommendation outside of all of the uh, Roger Pilka Jr. stuff that's going to be in the show notes. Um, I think people should check out, as I always recommend, rereading Plato's Republic. But there's a nice, um, the Ring of Gyges is a really important passage in that, right? It's a guy who finds a ring that turns him invisible. And it's sort of a thought experiment about, uh, you know, opacity and power. You know, and those things often go together. And you can't have radical transparency all the time. So what is this? What is this dance? This has been a difficulty of politics for a very, very long time. And I think as unique as modern life is, it behooves us to sit with our forebears to try to understand how they understood the problem. Because I think one of the things that can help uh, create the feeling of permanent crisis, which is also one of management and opacity, uh, right. is a commitment to our terminal uniqueness. Yeah. Some things are different and some things are not. So on that note, everybody stay strong, stay sharp, and we will see you next time. Roger, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Emmett.